This is Crossroads, a Get Religion podcast. There is no doubt that the January 6th riot at the nation's capital is a top news story for 2021. No doubt about it. Only six days into the year and it already was pretty much inevitable. Is it a top religion news story? Well, the Religion News Association says, yes, not only a top, the top religion story of 2021. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. How long have you been doing these RNA polls? Remind me of some of the themes that seem constant from year to year. Well, I think I did my first RNA poll in 1980. And once I became a religion reporter, first at the Charlotte News, then the Charlotte Observer, and then the Rocky Mountain News in Denver and started writing the national column, and the national column is about to hit year 33. I've been doing an annual column about the poll. So let's just say that I've looked at a couple of these ballots over time. And you and I have been talking about them now for how long now? Is this year six or seven? At least. Yeah. I know we got started before I moved to Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And that was six years ago. So anyway, yes, there are definitely patterns that you can see in this poll year after year. And I think I think in the past I've told you that there are like three things that are constants. Number one is pick the biggest political story of the year, political story, and then find a religion angle. Normally that's an election. But this year, I mean, we got to have an election and a riot. I mean, so I'm not surprised at all that January 6th was number one. There just had to be a religion angle to one of the worst things to happen in American history in terms of some perceived and actual, and I want to stress both of those, I believe there were people who planned an attack on the Capitol and came prepared for it. And I hope eventually that not just during highly politicized congressional hearings, I'm hoping that eventually we have the actual court cases in which we're going to find out who were the people who organized the actual attack on the building, who planned it in advance. And at that point, we can try to figure out how many of them had connections to religious groups. And, most importantly, because of claims made at the Washington Post and elsewhere, were the people who organized this riot somehow linked to the major structures of evangelical power in America? Because, to me, what we're seeing with the January 6th story is a part of a larger trend, which is 
the growth of totally independent megachurches and even tiny little churches. I haven't seen a story yet that documented anyone in the attack on the Capitol who represented or had connections to a major evangelical school, parachurch, publishing house, denominational headquarters, seminary, or anything else. There's no question that you did have some pastors or lay leaders from some pretty far out independent evangelical and fundamentalist churches. And were they among the people who just followed along or were they among the people who planned it? I hope we eventually get court testimony that gives us some facts on that. So far, the evidence is that those attacks were planned by members of wild organizations that were secular but contained people who definitely knew how to speak evangelical or pretended that they did. If you were looking for the symbolic moment of the whole thing, it's the guy in the horns, right? The shaman standing in the U.S. Senate, and then he finally gets up and does that prayer, which we have on a recording from that session. And we now know his background is this bizarre mixture of Proud Boys and QAnon and some evangelical history and some neo-paganism and all this other stuff. So this gets represented in the wording of the number one story of the year. And this is from the Religion News Writers Association. And that's the professional religion writers in America vote on this poll. And that includes a lot of people who are retired from the beat, etc. And so their number one story Listen to this carefully. Religion features prominently during the January 6th on the assault on the U.S. Capitol by pro-Trump insurrectionists. Some voice Christian prayers, while others display Christian or pagan symbols and slogans inside and outside the Capitol. I often am critical of how they word these things. I think that's a pretty good wording. Religion features prominently is not the same thing as prominent religious leaders played a role, if you get the distinction. And no question that these are pro-Trump insurrectionists. To me, the most haunting part of the whole thing is the people calling for the hanging of Pence. Because if there is a major bona fide evangelical leader playing a, a big role on that day. It's Mike Pence, you know, the guy that some of them are there with, you know, nylon cuffs, handcuffs, and nooses or, or ropes chanting to, you know, we want Pence, we want Pence. So that's a pretty good wording. What did you think of the wording of the question? Was there some anything part of it that caught your attention or upset you? Well, there's nothing in the the wording there. It allows them to make it number one without having, as you mentioned, to tie the riots to any prominent evangelical or Catholic leaders or even any prominent religious leaders of any religion. If you can't make that tie with quotes or whatever or calls to action or whatever it may be, how can you blame religion for 
the riot there on January 6th? Well, I think features prominently is true in terms of the banners outside and the people. So there were religious symbols among the waves of pro-Trump banners and political symbols. But once again, you just have to remember my rule. The first thing you do when doing this poll is you find the biggest political event of the year and then look for the religion aspect. And if there's any religion aspect there, it's the number one story of the year because the most important thing in life is politics. Politics is what is real. Politics is how you do things. So if there's any involvement of religion in politics, that's automatically the most important thing. And you can see that all through the poll in many ways. I mean, the, the newsmaker of the year is who? The president. The president. I mean, and, and there was there religious debate about Joe Biden? Yes, of course there was. And who's number two? Amy Coney Barrett. I, I, lo I, I love the juxtaposition here that Amy Coney Barrett is the second most important newsmaker of the year, followed by the Taliban. I thought that was a nice, maybe accidental <laughs> connection. So that leads us to the second story of the year, which is the Taliban retaking control of Afghanistan. And both of these stories, I, I want to stress, both of these stories I had in my own top five. And I haven't really sat down and painted out my top ten in order yet. But I definitely would have put both of these stories in the top five, the Taliban and the attack on the Capitol. I don't think there's any question that the attack on the Capitol is one of the most important stories of the year in general in American life. I think your point is, can we automatically blame that on religion or significantly blame it on religion? And from the viewpoint of the press right now, white evangelical Protestants are responsible for Donald Trump. For everything that Donald Trump does, ultimately, that can be blamed to some degree on white evangelical Protestants. Even though the key states that he won, the overwhelming votes that put him in the White House were actually Catholics. Or in the case of Florida, ironically, the key votes putting him in the White House there are Latino evangelicals and Pentecostals, Catholics, etc. The Taliban and the attack on the Capitol both have to be somewhere in the top five. I don't think there's any questions about that. The one I think that, well, a couple thoughts here. If all you're looking for is banners and slogans and things like that outside the Capitol, by that reasoning, the March for Life should be the top religion story every single year because it has the strongest religious association, but everybody tends to ignore that particular event, but that's just my opinion. Well, because it's not news. It's not news because it happens every year, and it involves lots of people who have absolutely zero representation in newsrooms that are making that decision about what is newsworthy and what isn't, which is why I remember one year, memorably, there was an important pro-abortion rights march there at the Capitol. And it received like X number of front page stories. They did everything but publish a special section 
on where to park, who the marchers were. The coverage went on and on and on. And then that same year, the Right to Life march was like four to five times larger. And it received one story about 15 inches in length back in the metro section. And that even caught the attention of the ombudsman person for the newspaper who finally said, look, look at this. Look at the difference between the coverage of these two events. Do we understand now why so many people believe that the press is essentially biased on issues of abortion coverage? It was like the, the ultimate test case. So that that segues nicely into number three, according yeah. to the Religion News Association, and that is, and I think this is, I think you would agree, a top five, Supreme Court hearing the Mississippi bid to overturn, in effect, the landmark Roe v. Wade legislation and all that followed from it in the Supreme Court. Well, this is funny because I have that, that would be in my top ten, maybe. It might not make my top ten. And the reason is they heard it. They didn't decide it. But... In terms of number of inches of digital type and oceans of ink poured out on the story, any threat to Roe is by definition a transcendent event in American life from the viewpoint of mainstream reporters. But, you know, if this is in my top ten, it would be toward the bottom, and I would not have put it in my top five for the simple fact that we don't have a decision. All they did was talk. And behind the scenes, we don't know what the Chief Justice of the United States is doing right now in order to somehow handle who writes the opinion, what the decision is, how strong it is. Because I think everybody knows that the Chief Justice will, to one degree or another, cast a deciding vote on this. Even though I believe some people say there's a five to four decision to overturn. The 5-4 votes might be there already. But Chief Justice Roberts hates 5-4 decisions. And I've heard several different scenarios explained for how he can get out of this with a decision that upholds the Mississippi law but doesn't completely overturn Roe. And thus, the court having to overturn one of its own most divisive decisions in history. Let's wait. I have no doubt that when the decision comes out, that will be the most important religion story of the year, if not second or third, you know, if something else happens. But, you know, at this point, it's it's important that it came up. But to me, this is the definition of something that isn't a concrete news story yet. But it's very important to journalists, and thus we see it you know, this high in the poll. So are you willing to say here at the outset that if in the early summer the Supreme Court does, in effect, overturn Roe v. Wade, it's automatically number one on the RNA list next year? Well, I can envision stories that would be deemed more important. I mean, if something did happen involving President Biden and his status in the Catholic Church, I could see that somehow being bigger. I could see, remember, rule number one, biggest political story, look for religion. Rule number two, what did the Pope do? What did the Pope do this year that was very important to politics or to something we really care about? And this was just amazing to me. 
I mean, in the top five stories of the year, in my opinion, way up in the list would be France's effectively now with his follow-up work, effectively banning the traditional Latin mass and making it very clear, I mean, that, that observance of the Latin mass, the traditional Latin mass, is frowned upon by the Vatican for reasons that the Latin mass, he has decided, symbolizes opposition to Vatican II. And Vatican II is to the middle and progressive half of the church the most important event in the history of Christianity. So I was stunned that the Latin Mass is all the way down at 17 in this poll. It was a very important story this year in terms of, in some ways, way, way more important than the kind of behind-the-scenes debate about what the Pope did or didn't say about Joe Biden or Joe Biden this or Joe Biden that. How do you describe his Catholicism? In terms of global Catholicism, this situation on the Latin Mass does way more to paint the actual picture of what matters during the pontificate of Francis. This is one of the defining acts of his papacy, especially since, in effect, he's overturning Benedict XVI on this subject. And ironically, of course, we still have Benedict XVI alive, you know, after retiring. But also note this funny little thing. The overturning of the Latin Mass is number 17. Number 15, in advance of the November Climate Summit in Glasgow, Pope Francis and other world religious leaders sign a document, Faith and Science, an appeal for COP26, calling for urgent, radical, and responsible action to reduce carbon emissions. <laughs> I mean, I don't know where that would even be in my ballot in terms of it having practical impact on life in the church or in, in the world of politics. That's an issue that journalists care a lot about. But I'll bet you that if you went into pews of Catholic churches in the United States and asked them how many of them had even heard of this document, you would be very hard-pressed to find one out of a hundred who had. But if you went into most Catholic churches in America, especially big Catholic churches, growing Catholic churches, and asked them what they thought of the Latin Mass decision, I think you would have found quite a bit of discussion and quite a bit of debate, and I think far more people would have known about it. So how does that happen? How does, I agree with you, how does Pope Francis's statement on the Latin Mass get pushed down to 17? I don't know. Normally what the Pope does and what is argued about among Catholics, being, with Catholics being the largest religious group in American life and American political life, ordinarily that would, to me, put this story much higher. So I'm, I'm at a bit of a loss. This thing dominated Catholic Twitter at various points of the year and was very much debated and discussed in Catholic media. So I'm waving my hands in the air right now. I don't understand why that story is way down there, especially when you look 
at some of the other things that made it into the top ten. Now, number four, according to RNA, I think should be closer to number one. Tens of thousands of government and private sector employees seek religious exemptions from COVID vaccine mandates. Many, but not all, religious leaders refuse to back such requests. Yeah, that's a big one. That's a religious liberty issue. That's a political issue. And COVID remains, obviously, a towering reality in American life, perhaps even more so this week with the astonishing numbers for Omicron coming out of New York City. With New York City, if you look at how COVID has developed and COVID stories have developed, you tend to have big news in New York, and then it takes longer for that to hit the rest of the country. But the fact at one point, I haven't seen the numbers today, but that New York City hit its highest rates of new COVID cases four days in a row this week, that's amazing. And this is an important religious liberty issue. So this one's definitely in my top four. And if you look down to number seven, let's link these two, for example, because I see these as connected. Number seven in the poll, pandemic continues to affect religious observance. Congregations increasingly return to in-person worship, but attendance levels remain short of 2020 levels. Many congregations continue pandemic-related outreaches, etc. Now, another trend in there showed up in several polls, and I saved some of the data from these polls when I write my own column on this for next week. I'm definitely going to mention this. The number of ministers in America who tell pollsters that they actively considered early retirement or resigning from the ministry during the last 12 months or the months of the pandemic, that something like one in four seriously considered it. I would have put that in the poll. And in terms of impact symbolizing how much the debates over the vaccines and the practical impact on attendance and donations, the way one person described it to me, and they were talking about liberal mainline Protestantism and the incredible declines in attendance and membership in the seven sisters of liberal mainline Protestantism, the seven denominations that are at the heart of what we used to call the liberal mainline. All of the crises in those churches have all been sped up about five to ten years by the reality of COVID. In other words, if your church was struggling going into the pandemic, if you had the classic numbers are 85 or fewer consistent tithing, donating families or individuals, and you were struggling to pay your bills before the pandemic, the pandemic is going to close a lot of those congregations. And a lot of those ministers are probably either going to leave the ministry or it's going to affect their future in the ministry just because of the financial and demographic realities. So if you look at the wording of number four, the pandemic being so divisive that you end up with pastors 
being asked to provide religious exemptions or denominations being asked to provide religious exemptions. That's like the point of the spear on this issue, but the spear is much bigger and more important, which is the impact that COVID is having on the future of religious life in America and the changes that will be made because of it. That's definitely in my top five and a very strong candidate to be number one. So five is, and it certainly deserves, in my opinion, to be in the top five, Joe Biden, second Catholic president, at least in terms of his public piety, he is frequently at mass and overtly Catholic in the sense that this is how he identifies himself. In essence, it's around a foul of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Yeah, that's in the top five. There's an interesting wording in here. Let's let the listeners hear this. Joe Biden takes office as second Catholic president, frequently attending mass and citing Catholic values and hymns, but drawing controversy supporting for supporting legal abortion. Now, that's a political wording. If you could word it this way, drawing controversy by, with his words and actions, opposing centuries of Catholic teachings on abortion and life issues. If you turn it into a doctrinal collision, it's much more significant and apparent, and it gets closer to the dilemma that the Catholic bishops have faced. And I've also noted, for some reason, journalists always leave this out. But to the conservative Catholics that I know, his statements and actions on abortion are very important. But just as important, and maybe even more important, under canon law, the laws of the church, was Biden's decision to actually perform same-sex marriage rights for members of the White House staff during the Obama White House. And in connection with that, him saying that he disagreed with Catholic teachings on same-sex marriage, same-sex unions, which by implication means he disagrees with church teachings on the moral standing of acts of homosexual sex, so to speak, the actual living out of that relationship in a non-celibate fashion. He's saying that, you know, that's wrong. He's also put out statements that say the number one human rights issue in our age is transsexualism and that the government will do everything. Well, all of these are actions in word and in deed that clash with Catholicism politically, but much more important as a Catholic individual, clash with the church doctrinally. So here you have the most prominent Catholic in the United States consistently opposing the teachings of his church on some of the most divisive issues of our age. So yeah, that, that's got to be way up there. You have the strange second-hand quote when he visits the Vatican, and he claims that Pope Francis told him to continue receiving communion. The U.S. Catholic bishops, of course, considered... I love that wording. U.S. Catholic bishops approve a document on communion that stops short of calling for withholding the sacrament from politicians who support abortion rights. Some bishops have said they wanted that, but I have yet to see 
a single word from a single sentence from any draft of that document that considered actively calling for Joe Biden or any other pro-abortion rights Catholic to not receive communion. At this point, there's no evidence at all that the U.S. Catholic bishops actively told the committee to put that language in the piece and then later thought better of it and withdrew under pressure from Rome or whatever. I'd love to see anyone leak a copy of a document suggesting that they seriously tried to do that. Number six, Gallup reports that American membership in houses of worship dropped below 50% for the first time in eight decades of that polling agency have measuring the subject. Some 47% of Americans say they go to church, synagogue, or mosque in 2020, down from 50% in 2018 and 70 in 1999. What are your thoughts? Might have made the very, very, very bottom of my top 10, but to me this is just more of the same demographic news that we've been receiving, especially in the wake of the Pew Research study of the religiously unaffiliated you know, which came out more than a decade ago. So to me, this isn't terribly surprising. I guess you could say it's highly symbolic, but this didn't strike me as anywhere near as big a hard news story, you know, as some of the other the issues that are in the poll this year. So to me, yeah, important, but more of the same. So... Seven, the one you mentioned about pastors considering early retirement. That's yeah. kind of a sleeper story, if you ask me. Yeah, it is. It's it's an example of something that started happening this year, but there wasn't any definitive moment when you could point at that story and say, here it is, we can't deny it pastors stating that anonymously in polling is important, but it didn't create a headline. It didn't have an extremely prominent pastor in a church that journalists would care about, like National Cathedral or some other big church in a zip code close to a major newsroom. You didn't have the symbolic event that made it real. It's a ticking time bomb story. So much of this stuff with COVID is really a ticking time bomb, and we're going to watch it slowly explode over the next five years or so and reshape some of the struggling religious groups and denominations in American life. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Number eight is certainly a tragic story and an obvious religious angle. Investigators in Canada using ground-penetrating radar find hundreds of unmarked graves at former residential schools for indigenous children, prompting new reckonings for church groups that operated such schools in the U.S. and Canada. Yes, it's a terrible story. It's not in my top ten. When you look at, I mean, comparing the impact of that with what fell down into number 11, the 43 nations issuing criticizing China's treatment of Muslim minorities. That's a big business story. That's a political story. It's a religious story. But at the same time, 
<laughs> I think journalists feel very divided about that story. They know it's very important, yet at the same time, the groups that we need to attack because of their compromises with China are in many cases groups that journalists tend to cheer for. And by that, I mean things like the Olympic Committee, Apple, Amazon, you know, and other groups that on moral and social issues are on the left. So let's put it this way. Voting for the China story, putting it higher in the poll, is granting a victory to conservative groups who want to punish China. So you could see kind of some of the conflicting interest there. But the Canadian story, I just didn't see it having as big an impact. But let me give you something that could have raised it up. If you had added into that the number of desecrated and burned and attacked churches in some of those sections of Canada and America, but see, to do that, you'd have to draw a connection that, you know, we have proven at this point that people who were mad about these findings were the people who burned churches down, knocked statues of Mary down and desecrated graveyards. And I, I think it's safe to assume that there's a connection there, but I don't know if it's proven yet. By the way, where in the list is the wave, global wave, of burning of churches, desecration of churches, and uh, especially attacks on Catholic churches? Is it anywhere in this list? I don't think so. So the church attacks didn't even get an item in the poll, which means that you can't vote for it if it's not there, unless you write it in, and of course write-in campaigns go nowhere. So the attacks on churches, if you were to connect those two, I could see this being in the top 10. Uh, it would be like a cause and effect. I'm not sure if this would make my top 10. I haven't, like I said, I haven't, I did not vote in the poll this year because I'm no longer a member of the RNA, but I follow it closely and I always write out my top 10 list. I'll make some mentions of that in my own column in a week. So uh, the last two slots in the RNA list go, in essence, to the Southern Baptist Convention, number nine being Beth Moore's ending her affiliation with that church body. She actually, I just learned yesterday, shows how big of a story it was, that she had actually converted to Anglicanism. Hold hold, hold. Remember, you can receive communion in an Anglican church without being a member. Do we actually have a story that said she went through a catechumenate and was chrismated into the church? No, we we don't, but we do have... This is an assumption on my part, Terry. She actually was assisting with communion, which I don't know that the Anglican. That's would. a good. That's a good point. I saw that this morning on Twitter, but I spent most of the previous day in a car driving all the way back from South Florida, from meeting with some family members all the way back to East Tennessee. So I didn't see that explosion on Twitter and have not had a chance to follow up reading the coverage yet. If she was distributing communion as an assistant, I think that. It'd be very strange if she had not actually been formally, ritually brought into the church. Is she well-known enough to make the top ten list as a prominent, I guess she would call it, exile from the Southern Baptist Convention? Well, there is—Julia Dean has a post up today about a follow-up story about Rob Bell. And I think it's safe to say that—you're familiar with the term ex-evangelicals? Yes. Okay, 
the ex-evangelicals live rent-free in the minds of many, many, many journalists. Anything they do is more certainly more important than what major leaders of evangelicalism actually do. So you, you mentioned kind of connecting this. Beth Moore leaving and the change in status for Russell Moore, I'm, I'm not sure he's formally left the denomination, but he's attending a Reformed Heritage Church in Nashville that is not Southern Baptist. That would not be in my top ten. The number ten story definitely would be in my top ten and would probably be in my top five. Southern Baptist Convention rolled by resignation and leaked documents, tamps down a rightward push at annual meeting, accurate, elects president who seeks racial healing, accurate, rejects bid to repudiate critical race theory, accurate, but it's more important what they ended up actually saying, and OK's probe of its executive committee's handling of sexual abuse, accurate. Those are all huge stories affecting the largest non-Catholic flock in American life and directly linked to the wider subject of Me Too and Church Too, which has been a, a, a giant story in American culture for the last two years or so. So that's definitely a top 10 story and, to me, deserve to go higher. So you've mentioned a couple already, but what made it into the second tier, that is 10 through 20, according to this official list that you think, at the very least, should have garnered consideration for the top 10? Well, the the reporting of the sex abuse report in France was certainly a very important Catholic story. I'm not sure how many Americans would know about that story or would have considered it to be top 10, but it's a very important global religion story. There's no question about that. And that's down, where is the France story? Number 16 down there. Oh, here's a, a great example of another one of my uh, lenses through which I view these polls is every year it seems like there's some very important story in religious liberty that doesn't get covered or doesn't get as much attention as it should. So look symbolically. Number 21, religious left energized by Democrat controlled renews advocacy for program, blah, blah, blah. The religious left have the big year. Well, okay, maybe. Number 22, Virginia Governor-elect Glenn Youngkin, other Republicans galvanized strong evangelical and other conservative support in state and local elections. CRT becomes a flashpoint, et cetera, et cetera. That's a great example of find a big political story and find the religion element and vote for it, except in this case the conservatives won. So that's the next to last item on the whole poll, way down there. And, and I, I don't think it was that big of a religion story. It was a huge political story. But the, to me, the religion angle, if any, from the religion angle, much of it was linked to issues voting over trans issues in the state. But then here's the last item of the poll, dead last. Now tell me the most important word in this as I read it. I wish we could have a show of hands among listeners. We could do it in some sort of interactive video on this. The U.S. Supreme Court unanimously sides with a Catholic foster care agency, saying the city of Philadelphia wrongly 
limited its relationship with the group because of its religious views prevent it from working with same-sex couples. What word jumps out at you in that? The word that stands out to me? Yeah. Unanimously. Unanimously. I mean, this is a gigantic potential precedent in one of the most important issues in American religious life, which is, can religious schools and organizations continue to live out the doctrines at the basis of their work? Now, the, most of the cases we've seen have to do with debates about hiring and firing, but here's another one. Can governments, see, this, is, this links up to what could be one of the big stories for next year, those hearings recently at the U.S. Supreme Court about private schools in, in Maine, can a state program that supports private education deliberately say the state has a right to knock out schools that the state considers too religious? In other words, there are good religious schools and bad religious schools based on whether or not you're doing what the state wants you to do, which quite frankly sounds an awful lot like the establishment of a state-approved religious creed, or at least on certain doctrines. Well, that's a big story, and this one could be related to it. It's another case of equal access principles and laws, which is if the state's going to help private organizations, is religion uniquely dangerous? Or should the state say, we're either going to help all private groups in this area, we're going to treat them all the same and treat them equally, or are we just going to say, well, if we don't want to fund religious groups, then we won't fund secular groups that fall under that category or fall under this program as well. Equal access. We would treat groups the same instead of saying that there are forms of religious observance, doctrine, and on another level, free speech that are more dangerous than others. And the state can pick those out and say, the state says that's bad religion and we're not going to support it. But we will support good religion, which is religion we like. Religion that has doctrines that are approved by the state. Well, that's a big, big story. It's going to be near the top of my list of top stories of the year. And here it is, all the way down, dead last, at number 23. And a unanimous court decision on almost anything is headline-worthy these years. A unanimous Supreme Court decision on something related to the First Amendment and religious liberty, that really stands out. Finally, what will be the top religion news story of 2022? About 30 seconds. Huh. Roe v. Wade. I think the court decision coming out is my early pick. If you're looking for impact on America that will be just as big, keep your eye on the main decision about aid to religious schools and secular schools. Because with COVID and everything else that's happening, we're in a big changing era for schools in America, and that would be a big decision. So the short list, keep your eye on the Supreme Court. I think we'll have a Supreme Court decision at the top next year. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. 
He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.